The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superman. This is Rich Horwath, author of Strategy Man vs. the Anti-Strategy Squad, using strategic thinking to defeat bad strategy and save your plan. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know, and named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help us both discover new ideas so we can better succeed in the quickly changing field of modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you are a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or some other helpful resource that I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction and save you time. This show is produced by my marketing firm. We work with manufacturers to help them grow. If you're a manufacturer and are serious about growing your business, check out our guide to lead generation for manufacturers on our website, salesartillery.com, or Google lead generation for manufacturers, and you'll find the guide atop the organic results. And very special thanks to this episode's sponsor, Aribi. If you're overwhelmed by Google Analytics data and not sure how to turn it into actual insights to improve your website conversions, you can get a free 10-day trial, no credit card required, by visiting oribi.io slash marketingbook. That's O-R-I-B-I dot I-O slash marketingbook. And use that link to get 30% off your first three months. And unlike Google Analytics, you'll get a helpful and friendly conversion expert available 24-7 to answer your questions and show you nifty tricks and hacks to optimize your conversions. I'll have more details in a bit. And now, on with the show. Today, we welcome Rich Horwath to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his book, Strategy Man versus the Anti-Strategy Squad, Using Strategic Thinking to Defeat Bad Strategy and Save Your Plan, published by Greenleaf. Rich Horwath is a New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and USA Today bestselling author on strategy. As the CEO of the Strategic Thinking Institute, Rich leads executive teams through the strategy process and has helped more than 100,000 managers around the world develop their strategic thinking skills. A former chief strategy officer and professor of strategy, Rich's research on strategic thinking and strategic planning has appeared in Fast Company and the Harvard Business Review, just to name a few. Rich and his work have appeared on 
ABC, CBS, CNBC, CNN, NBC, and Fox. And as a keynote speaker, he's spoken to leaders at companies including Google, Intel, and FedEx, and has been ranked the number one speaker on strategy and innovation at national conferences. And interesting fact, he was the goalie for the University of Connecticut soccer team. Rich, congratulations on Strategy Man versus the Anti-Strategy Squad, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thanks, Douglas. Great to be with you today. And I should also mention that uh, at one point, Earlier in your career, you were at Second City, which is uh, where so many of the the great comedians and and uh, Saturday Night Live regulars came from. Tell us about that. So Second City was an amazing experience. I had an opportunity to spend a year there in the training program and went through a number of different uh, programs and and really got a chance to explore what it's like to speak in an impromptu session, to sing impromptu, and Unfortunately, my singing career uh, ended pretty much right there, as did my <laughs> acting career. But 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 it but it did inspire my writing. So uh, while Steve Carell and Tina Fey went on to stardom, um, I did get a chance to uh, to to write some books and to help a few folks out with uh, strategic thinking. So it's been a win-win. That's terrific, it's horrific. So I just want to read one thing from some of the promotional materials here, just to set the stage for folks to understand what we're dealing with. What happens when a strategy textbook and superhero comic book collide? The groundbreaking new business graphic novel, Strategy Man versus the Anti-Strategy Squad, using strategic thinking to defeat bad strategy and save your plan. So this after, gosh, almost 250 books on the show, this is the first graphic novel. And I, my hat is off to you. It's 166 pages of, of the artwork and the story. And a couple things came to mind. One is, uh, this must have been expensive to produce. It's difficult to do. You, you basically storyboarded a whole movie here. And you have also, Rich, made it really difficult for all the other authors. And here's why I say that. <laughs> there have been a few books on the show where fables are included or stories like uh, Be Like Amazon, Even a Lemonade Stand Can Do It by the Eisenberg Brothers or Bob Berg or uh, Smash the Funnel by Mike Lieberman and Eric Kalis. And even uh, Ardeth Albee's book had some, some stories in it. And I I'm hopeful that more and more business books will start to have these fables because, as we all know, uh, the human brain is very receptive to stories. And now you've done this. So just a message to anyone else who wants to be on in the future, I I'm only going to be doing graphic novels from now, <laughs> from now on. <laughs> what prompted you to take this approach? Well, Douglas... About 10 years ago, I came out of the movie The Dark Knight, and folks might remember that. It was one of the uh, trilogy that Christopher Nolan produced, and Heath Ledger played the Joker. And uh, it was a really powerful movie. And one of the things I try and do with the, the companies I work with is an exercise called domain jumping, where we go from their business and industry, and we look at what are people doing in other industries. And so when I walked out of that movie, my son, who at, who at the time was about five years old, said to me, Dad, is there a superhero for strategy? And <laughs> it was one of those lightning bolt questions. Well, he is your son. 
<laughs> it, it was one of those things where I said, well, no, there's not. And then as we had the car ride home, I started to think, you know, why isn't there a superhero for strategy? And, and then what we did is we started to put together some research on the top 20 challenges that managers face, things like bad meetings and fire drills and silos. And then we personified those into villains. And so that's really how it took life. But to your point, as I looked at my son and daughter who were growing up and now in high school, they're so visually oriented. Every time they get online, they're going to YouTube. They're looking at videos. They're looking at graphics. And I challenged the companies that I work with and the managers I work with, what are you doing that's different than the competition. And so I, I put that question on myself and through the domain jumping and the question my son posed, we started to create uh, strategy, man. Well, hats off to you. I read this very closely, perhaps even more closely than, <laughs> than another book. And you've really uh, packed in quite a bit, actually. You've snuck in a uh, brilliant textbook <laughs> about <laughs> strategy into this, uh, this comic book or graphic novel, I should say. Let me just set the stage uh, from the back of the book. Normally, Rich, I would read an excerpt from the book, but in this case, um, I would need to act it out, and this is an audio only. And <laughs> so, Although uh, there are some um, animated videos you've done, and we'll include the trailer in your uh, episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. So from the back of the book, it says, Technobody, maker of wearable technologies, is under attack. Its strategic plan is slowly being killed by the top 20 strategy challenges, villains. Every company faces bad meetings, which is called meeting menace. Fire drills, fire driller. Silos, silo clops. And too many priorities, Dr. Yes. To name just a few, they are members of the Anti-Strategy Squad, a gang whose mission is to cause mass strategy side and global bankruption. But Technobody would not fail without a fight. Led by their fearless managers and three superheroes, Strategy Man, Innovatara, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, and Purposeiden, they will summon all of their strategic thinking powers to wage one final war against bad strategy and save their plan. But before we get into the, the weapons and the heroes and a handful of the villains, there's too many villains to go into, Talk about the importance of strategic thinking. What are the misperceptions? What are the challenges companies facing? And, and uh, what are they missing out on by not having strategy in their life or, or enough strategy? Yeah, it's a great point, Douglas. I think what we see oftentimes today is that people are so activity driven and activity oriented. We're, we're on this activity treadmill where we're just doing tasks and doing tasks and doing tasks and very, very unlikely to kind of step out of that day-to-day and really stop and think about what we're doing. But what's interesting is if you look at a lot of the great leaders throughout business history, people like Meg Whitman when she was running eBay and Bill Gates when he was at Microsoft and even today Jeff Bezos at Amazon, what you find with all these great managers and leaders is that they all take time to stop and think about the business and they're very diligent in taking notes and on their ideas and their in their in their solutions for coming up with ways to to create new value for their customers. So the great managers and leaders are very intentional about taking time to think about their business. And what uh, a study we commissioned with uh, the human 
Institute of Research group was showed that with 400 talent management leaders, so these are folks that work in talent management, oftentimes in HR, what they found was the most important skill for managers to move up to that next level was strategic thinking around 61% of the time. So while other skills like emotional intelligence, communication skills, all very important, in order to move up in the organization, what they found was strategic thinking, that ability to come up with new insights, new ideas on a regular basis that bring new value was really that number one skill. So while people are challenged today to find time to think, the great leaders and managers are doing it on a regular basis. And all those folks you mentioned, they also read the occasional business book. Absolutely. I was also sent a stack of these. It was like a card deck of these, what you call training cards. They're almost like trading cards. And I think uh, you mentioned these are for sale on your website, but they're all over my desk right now. All of that. Gosh, there's like one for each of the 20 villains, one for the different, uh, I think it's four different uh, weapons and the three different heroes. I've learned a lot, and uh, maybe it's because I was so entertained while doing it, and it brought to mind something from my past, which is when I was in the Army years and years ago, there was this magazine called PS Magazine, which stands for Preventive Service, which was a a cartoon book that they the Army, I think it still has it, and it was started in World War II, and it was cartoons that were conveying very important maintenance points that the soldiers needed to know about to keep the equipment running. And they were very interesting. They're very well done and very, very effective because they were all in a story and they would even start to give a personality to like a, a tank <laughs> or, or the villains. And uh, the one thing that I, I do remember, Rich, is that there was this one very attractive blonde character in the magazine and her name was Connie Rod. And I'm just going to leave it at that. But uh, at any rate, <laughs> it was a similar sort of thing as I was reading through your book. And you often say, be strategic or be gone. Why, why do you say that? So be strategic or be gone really comes from the research that shows, and this was based on a 25-year study at a Harvard Business School. They showed that they looked around 750 bankrupt companies, and they looked at a lot of different causes for bankruptcy. And what they found was that the number one cause of bankruptcy 80% of the time was bad or non-existent strategies. So, you know, as, as we look at companies today, companies potentially that we grew up with like Toys R Us, we, we see that, you know, nobody's future is guaranteed. If you don't have good strategy, if your team is not able to think strategically, you know, there's no guarantee that we're going to be around tomorrow or three months or three years from now. So, be strategic or be gone really relates to from a company perspective, you have to have great strategy. And then from an individual perspective, you know, we're always trying to show our value to our organization to create new ideas, new solutions. And strategic thinking is really the generation of those insights, those ideas that lead to new value. So if we can increase our strategic thinking ability as individuals, and then help our organizations be strategic, we have a much better chance of not only surviving, but really thriving in the marketplace today. What are some of the perceptions, though, of strategy and maybe some of the pushback for why companies don't do it? Do they think it's too dry or you have to have an MBA or something? Yeah, those are definitely two two reasons for it. And I think, you know, to your point, Douglas, a lot of times what we see is that strategy is like a birthday in companies. You know, it happens <laughs> once a year. Right. There's a lot there's a lot of signage and fanfare. People get excited about it. There's a big PowerPoint deck, they present it, 
And then it really goes away for 11 and a half months. And mm-hmm. what we tried to communicate to folks is, you know, strategy should be more of an ongoing dialogue about your key business issues. And that's really what we've tried to do in the, in the strategy man book is give people a lot of practical tools and techniques and tips, things that are very simple to, to apply so that strategy doesn't become like a birthday, that annual event, but it's, it's more of an, an everyday occurrence, something that we can build into a habit. Because if we do anything once a year, whether it's golf or tennis or playing the piano, we're probably not going to be very good at it. And the same as with strategy. We do that once a year. We're probably not going to be very strategic. So Strategy Man is really developed to help people be strategic on a regular basis to build up that muscle. Mm-hmm. So in this, I think you do a fair amount of myth or BS busting. <laughs> and you tear into some of these people that are have all kinds of jargon. In fact, uh, one of the uh, – let me look at my cards here. Uh, jargon is one of the uh, one of the villains. Who is it? Oh, Jargon Goblin. That's right. So related to that, though, let's talk about a couple of the weapons before we get into the heroes and the villains. And I'd like you to start with what is outlined at the very beginning of the book. If listeners don't take much more away than what we're about to talk about, it will be very helpful. Let's talk about ghosts. (laughs) But the G-O-S-T, the ghost framework, explain what is a goal, an objective, a strategy, and a tactic. These are horribly misunderstood, I think, in the business world. Douglas, you're absolutely right. They are misunderstood. And it's interesting because when you think about those four terms, and the reason that I prefer to use those four terms versus some of the others that are out there, is these are really the four original terms. If you go back 2,500 years in history into the military arena, when you had folks like Sun Tzu, the Chinese general and philosopher with the writings that become became the book, The Art of War, and then later on, Karl von Clausewitz, the Prussian general, these terms are really the foundational terms. And to your point, what we try to communicate to folks is you have to have a consistent understanding within your team, within your company of what these terms are. And the reason, again, I like the ghost, the goals, objective, strategy, tactics is because they very simply answer the two questions that are relevant to any plan. And those two questions are, number one, what are you trying to achieve, which is answered by your goals and objectives? And then the second question is, how are you going to achieve them? And which is answered by your strategy and tactics. So the ghost framework very nicely and and simply answers those two questions. What are you trying to achieve and how are you going to do it? And that's going to be applicable to you know, a Fortune 500 company. It's going to be applicable to the nonprofit organization that you volunteer at for their plan. So the ghost really, again, just tries to simplify it and give people some concrete definitions. I look at hundreds of business plans, sales, marketing plans, each year. And Douglas, I'm sure you see the same thing. There's a lot of confusion as to what these terms are. So we're just trying to simplify it for folks. So talk about how in each of those, the what and the how, it's general and then specific. So goals, objective, and then strategy and tactic. That's exactly right. So the goal is generally what you're trying to achieve. Let's say you're trying to reach the peak of the mountain. You're going to climb a mountain. So the goal is to get to the top of the mountain. The objective then to your point, is going to be more specifically what are you trying to achieve. So it might be to ascend 2,000 feet each day for four days till you get to that 8,000-foot summit. So the objective is going to be quantifiable, 
And then there's also going to be a time frame around it. And then the strategy is going to be how generally you're going to get to the top. Can you go straight up? Do you need to zigzag up? Do you need to go around to the other side? The general approach. And then the tactics are going to be more specific or tangible. So in this case, do we need uh, pickaxes? Do we need hiking boots? Do we need ropes? Do we need a boat to go around the other side? What are those specific elements? So again, to your point, the goal is the generally what you're trying to achieve, the objective more specifically with a time frame and a quantification. And the strategy is generally how you're going to do it. And then the tactics a little bit more specifically how you're going to do it. Right. So everyone who's listening, this probably has in their uh, break room or their conference room, some sort of uh, mission, vision, va- values. And I think those are sort of like the... Uh, strategy plans there nobody's everyone's ignoring them remind listeners what those three things are uh, you call it the purpose trident which are the the mission the vision and the values it seems like a lot of times they're all just blurred together in some sort of uh, feel good language Douglas you're exactly right a lot, to your point they tend to be so watered down and vanilla and generic that you could put basically any name from any of your competitors on them, right. and, it's pro- and it's probably going to be applicable. So to your point, that the purpose tried mission, vision, values are really the three aspects of purpose. So the mission is your current purpose. What, why do you exist? Who are you serving? What are you offering them? You know, what's your reason for being? The vision then is your future purpose. What do you as an organization aspire to be? Where do you aspire to go in 10, 15 years? And then the values are really what guides your purpose day in and day out. So what are those three to five traits or characteristics that are really going to help you decide who you're going to act like, what decisions you're going to make day in and day out um, to guide that purpose? So to your point, I think oftentimes we don't give that enough attention and we don't necessarily get specific. You know, we'll, we'll throw up, especially for values, we'll throw up things like honesty and integrity and innovation. But why is that more relevant to your group than other groups? So you really want to dig in to unearth, you know, who are we as an organization? What do we stand for? And then how do we represent that in, especially from a values perspective in three to five traits? Yeah, three to five. And it reflects true beliefs and different from others in the market. <laughs> Back to your point about how you could put almost any name on there for some of these companies. It made it very clear and it made it fun to learn. We're going to take a break here so I can tell you about this sweet free 10-day offer from Aribi that does not require a credit card, will make you look smart. And frankly, if you don't take advantage of it, I might wonder if you're listening to the right podcast. Plus, there's an additional special offer for Marketing Book Podcast listeners. As marketers, we're drowning in website data. Have you ever looked at a Google Analytics report or tried to explain to someone? Knowing exactly what to do with Google Analytics data isn't easy. It was built for analytics experts with plenty of time, technical resources, and a pretty deep understanding of that platform, unlike most of us. Aribi's goal is to make web analytics easy, and the Aribi platform has proven to be a game changer for thousands of businesses. That's because Aribi translates your website data into actionable insights and helps you focus on what really matters and what requires your attention right now. We've been using Aribi here at Artillery, and I know this sounds crazy, but it reminds me of when I was in the Army and the first time I ever put on night vision goggles. Suddenly, I could see things I didn't see before. Like I said, it's kind of a game changer, or as I recall saying in both instances, whoa! 
And unlike Google Analytics, you get a helpful and friendly conversion expert available 24-7 to answer your questions and show you nifty tricks and hacks to optimize your conversions. You can even ask for Emily. She's a marketing book podcast listener just like you. But don't get her started on Nebraska football. Remember, this is a free 10-day trial that does not require a credit card. So even if you don't end up using a rebe past the trial, you'll get access to all the reports and insights to improve your website conversions, and you'll get 24-7 access to a conversion expert. But wait, there's more. Marketing Book Podcast listeners who sign up for Aribi will get 30% off their first three months. With savings like that, you might consider sending your host a bottle of single malt scotch. To support the Marketing Book Podcast and take advantage of this offer, go to oribi.io slash marketingbook. That's spelled O-R-I-B-I dot I-O slash marketingbook. There's also a link to it on this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And now, back to the show. Last thing I wanted to ask about, we don't have time for all the weapons, but this is super relevant to the sales and marketing folks that are listening, and that is the differentiator detector. If you could explain this differentiator detector, and it looks like a uh, Mossberg shotgun on steroids. It's <laughs> um, a great description. So what are some of the questions that companies should really be looking at to determine how they really are different? Yeah, it's a it's a good it's a good point because what happens is as we as we be, if we've been in the market for a while and those of you out there that have been in your business for 5, 10, 15 years understand this, we tend to have this phenomena called competitive convergence where we and the competitors that we compete with start to look and sound and act a lot alike. And what that does is it it confuses our customers. They don't really start to see any difference. And again, we know from a sales and marketing perspective, once we become a commodity in the eyes of the customer, then it really boils down to price. And, and for most of us, we don't necessarily want that to be the, the be-all uh, be all decision uh, criterion. So what we want to understand when we talk about differentiation is really think about number one, you know, what are those core competencies? And I define core competencies as really those areas of expertise. What do you know better than anybody else? So what are those core competencies that you have? And what are those capabilities? And capabilities are really the the the, the resources and activities that you're able to apply to bring value to the marketplace. So those are great places to start, you know, even simply on a piece of paper or flip chart, you know, put yourself in one column and a couple competitors to the left. And then put down core competencies in the left-hand side and then capabilities below it. And really just then identify what are your core competencies? What do you know? What does the competitors know? What's their areas of expertise? And then drop down to that next row and think about capabilities. You know, what are the resources that we have? What are the activities that we do from a sales, a marketing perspective? And then list those for the competition. And I do this exercise with folks I work with. And oftentimes, you know, they walk away initially frustrated because a lot of the core competencies and capabilities look a lot like their competition. But yes. that, but, but yeah, please go ahead. No, I was just going to say there's what does happen when there seems to be this sea of sameness and maybe maybe you're the unfortunate soul that's helping to point them out and of course that's for the good but it seems like a lot of companies end up saying oh gosh we are the same where do you then lead them uh, when they start to realize that there's just an awful lot of parity yes it's an important point and what we typically try to do is let's start with the customer 
So think about the, the customers that you're serving, the clients that you're serving, and what are the really important jobs that they need to get done day in and day out? What are the things that your offerings, your products, your services are helping them with? And then think really about how can you move to the next level of value for them. So think about what are some of the challenges that they work through? What are some of the issues that they're having, the problems? And think about are there ways that we can extend our value to start solving some of those unmet needs, some of the problems that they're having? And so once we start thinking about that, then we can start to connect that back with our core competencies and capabilities and say, can we offer something? Can we create something that's not currently part of our offerings or the competitive offerings that would solve some of these problems for our customers that would bring them some new value, can we start to think through that? So that's really, I think, that the next step is to, to go back to the customer because you know we don't want to be one of these companies that creates a lot of bells and whistles because we think they're neat, but then the customer doesn't want them. So we want to really start with the customer. What are their needs? What are the unmet needs and the jobs to be done? And then how can we bring value there? Mm, you're warm in the cockles of my heart. You know, we could almost stop right there. <laughs> we won't. <laughs> but start with the customer. So few companies do that. And uh, that's one of the recurring things from so many books on the show is that if you can just focus on your customer a little bit more <laughs> than your competition, you're really going to stand out. Just today, I got a message from a listener in Denmark. And he was asking about, you know, are there any books about how to organize your marketing? And I said, well, yeah, I'm not sure about a specific book like that, but a lot of the books talk about the folly of organizing your marketing around your product or organizing your marketing around your channel, like email, video, whatever, that sort of thing. The one thing that's come up many, many times and is, I think, Solid gold advice is organize your marketing around your your customer or your your segment or your or your buyer personas. So when they go and get some insights from their customers, it's just book after book talks about how those that are closest to their customers are the most successful. So let's talk a bit about the heroes. And there's only three trying to vanquish 20 foes. And those uh, those villains in your book, those folks were really pretty rough. <laughs> right. Pretty scary. I mean, they were they were they were perfect villains. So, Strategy Man, I'm and I'm I'm holding these cards up. You've got pictures of them. Love it, Strategy Man. And I just have to mention the favorite. His favorite phrase is, "It's not until you get off the beaten path that the beating can begin." <laughs> that just reminded <laughs> me of what the Marines are always saying: "Pain is weakness leaving the body." <laughs> exactly. So you've got Strategy Man, who uh, there's even uh, certain things that make him weak, like kryptonite to uh, to Superman. And then tell us more about the other two. Perposeidon, he's the guy that holds the uh, trident, just in case anyone's uh, keeping track at home. And Innovatara, if I'm pronouncing uh, her name correctly. T tell us about those two. Yeah, you pronounced her name perfectly. And so Innovatara, we wanted someone to represent the idea of innovation. And, you know, Douglas, you know, as well as anybody, there's lots of literature on innovation. And, you know, being a simple minded guy from the Midwest, I try and keep things simple. And so for me, the, the simplest definition of innovation is creating new value for customers. And so Innovatara is really 
there in the in the book to remind the managers at Technobody to keep things simple, to focus on the customer, and really think about what's the new value that we can bring to the table. And oftentimes, you know, Douglas, to your point a moment ago, you know, if we're a product company, we often think about all right, what's the new bell or whistle that we can add to this product. And what we what, what I've seen a lot of times for companies that are trying to grow and innovate is really think about not necessarily just your product per se, but what are the peripheral things around the product that the customer experiences? So might be things like service, support, education, financing. What are those elements that potentially you could bring new value to? So Innovatara provides some different tools and techniques in the book to help managers think about their different their business differently so that they're able to not necessarily stay with the status quo, who's again one of our villains, status quo lock, but to do things a little bit differently that that's going to resonate with customers and, and really take their problems and their their challenges and really flip those around so that they've got some practical solutions. Excellent. So there's a framework in the book and it's uh, acumen, which is what you know. What are your top three insights that have led to? this new value for your customers recently. And then allocation, how should you reallocate resources, time, people, budget, to be more focused? And then, you know, what are your action? What are your top three priorities? I would like you to introduce the villain, Dr. Yes. Of course, I see what you did there, Dr. No. And and the guy even dresses uh, quite a bit like um, Dr. No or Dr. Evil, for those listeners in uh, Belgium. Tell us who Dr. Yes is and why he's so pernicious. I, I read this and I thought, oh my gosh, he's everywhere and, and I almost don't always realize it. Yeah, and I uh, love the uh, reference to Austin Powers there, Douglas. You're right on the money. So, Well, it's the, one of the greatest films in, in, in film history, I think, but please. I, I'm with you. I'm with you. So Dr. Yes is really meant to represent the phenomena where we tend to put too much on our plate and for a lot of your listeners out there, very you know, very skilled marketers and salespeople. A lot of times, what's what's led to people's success is is taking on more responsibility, taking on more accountability, more projects, more initiatives. But the research shows that the people who are most effective over the long term are the ones that are really focused on just a few things where they can bring the most value. And especially for those folks out there that lead people. If everything that's coming to you as a leader is getting passed along to your people, then we're not really doing the job as a leader. We're, we're being an order taker and we're passing things along. So part of the job of a leader is to really filter the noise, the, the extraneous stuff that's not important so that your, can, your people can really focus on what's most important. And I think, again, as I work with lots of different folks around the world, I see that people have too much on their plate, but the great leaders and managers, as they add things to their plate, they're taking stuff off of their plate as well. Well, aren't people afraid to say no, though, in the workplace? Like they're not being uh, cooperative, and I'm guessing that a lack of clear goals leads to this not wanting to say no. Yeah, you hit on a really, really important point, and it's something that I hear quite often from folks that I work with, is that, look, Rich, in our culture, politically, 
I can't say no. I've got to say yes to everybody. And this I find, especially with folks that are working internally in functions like HR and operations, IT and finance, they feel like they've got to serve everyone. But the great managers, the great leaders really understand that everybody has to have a strategy, meaning they have to have the goals that they're trying to set and they have to have the pathway and the few things that are going to get them to those goals. And so one of the things that we have to think about out there is we we certainly have priorities, but you also have to deprioritize things. You have to have a not-to-do list because if you try to do too much, you're going to water down your value. So while you have to do it in the right way and at the right time, you have to be able to deprioritize things so that you can focus in the best way on the things that are going to really move the needle for your business. Yes, and it brought to mind a book that was on the podcast a couple of years ago by Rebecca Geyer about marketing to engineers. At the beginning of the book, she talks about you have to learn to say no to grow. And then she gives examples of companies that are doing exactly what, what you've described. So, Rich, my biggest competitor is not another marketing agency. It's the status quo. <laughs> In other words, <laughs> I wish it were another competitor, but it were. it's companies that just can't make a decision. Inertia is the most powerful force in the business world. One of the most interesting things in the book, of, of all the many villains, and boy, did I hate these villains, probably because all 20 of them I've, I've suffered from, I've been injured by, I have scars <laughs> from all these villains. But one of them is the status quo lock. Talk about the, oh gosh, invisible power of the status quo, why that's so deadly. It's like lulling people into a false sense of security. And, and what are some of the things that can help people on the inside or outside to get status quo lock not to have a lock? Yeah, status quo is something, to your point, Douglas, we find in a lot of places. And interestingly, you've probably seen this as well. Oftentimes, status quo happens the most with companies and people that have been really successful because, again, you know, why rock the boat? We've been doing well. We've been growing our market share. Sales are good. So why should we change anything? And, oh, yeah. It's know, a real challenge. Look, look at Kodak. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, it, and, and, and I love that you brought up Kodak because what I typically do, to your point, with groups that I work with, especially those that, that have been successful – is I try and introduce some of the companies that that were number one in their market. And then all of a sudden, they stopped paying attention to what customers wanted. They stopped understanding the competitive landscape. They stopped trying to innovate and to create new value. And all of a sudden, they're either gone or you know very much diminished. So to your point, a company like Kodak, they actually had good digital technology early on, but they couldn't break that status quo internally. Managers didn't want to, to adopt digital because they knew it would cannibalize their film business. You look at a company like Circuit City, you know, that you talk about great books, you know, good to great. Obviously, Jim Collins comes out in 2001. It named Circuit City as one of the top 11 companies in the world based on all the, the, the research that they did. And then seven years later, they're gone. And so, you know, Toys R Us is another more recent example. So what I try to do is create that sense of urgency that, look, just because you're number one today, there's no guarantee that you're going to be number one in a year or two years or five years. So what are you doing to create that new value? How are you differentiating yourself and what skills, competencies and capabilities are you 
continuing to invest in and develop in so that your company is going to stay in that top spot. Mm. So one of the other villains, and we're doing a villain's row here. (laughs) So SWAT, anyone who's studied business, uh, stands for strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. I don't see these being used as much anymore. And I had to laugh out loud when I read the book and you explained that, or one of the characters explained that SWAT is also known for serious waste of time. (laughs) So as I was, SWAT bot is this computer who is doing a SWOT analysis and doing it rather badly. And I just thought, oh man, it's like I've been in that room before watching somebody try to do one of these things. Explain what this SWOT analysis is, why it's powerful, but where it goes off the rails sometimes. Yeah, it's it's interesting. SWOT analysis, you know, to your point, Douglas, it's it's been around for, you know, 40 years or so. It's the most commonly used strategic planning tool in the world. And I think what happens is everybody's familiar with it. So they do it, but they don't really do anything with it. It becomes kind of a check the box exercise and they don't really do it with precision. They kind of half-heartedly do it and they come up with a big it winds up being a big laundry list of stuff that's going on in the business. And what Particularly the strengths column, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right, right. We're good at everything. You know, we want to make sure everybody in the room is represented on the, on the flip right. chart. Nope. So we, you know, we have 37 items up there. But, but what I found is that if, if people follow a few rules of thumb, they can do SWAT, SWAT maybe a little bit better. You know, typically I like to, 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 to say that you have to have three to five in each area. You don't really want much more than that because we're trying to use this as a thinking and planning tool. So you really want to... To, to me, SWAT should really represent what's going to make or break your business this year. And if you think about it through that lens, then it tends to have a little bit more relevance. And then, you know, as we talk about in the book, once you do the SWOT analysis, one of the big complaints is, well, we don't really do anything with it after that. And so I want <laughs> to- Maybe we feel better for, <laughs> for right. a day. <laughs> right. It might be a little bit of the group therapy sometimes, right? Yes. But uh, so so we introduced the the SWAT alignment tool, which which actually takes the next step and in, in transforms SWAT into strategy by really just simply aligning your strengths and weaknesses with the opportunities and threats, and just doing that in a simple matrix to come up with potential strategy. So, again, I think to your point, people do SWOT analysis. We don't do it with precision, but if you follow a few of the the the, uh, the rules of thumb in the book, and then you take that next step and do the SWOT alignment that you're actually creating strategy from it, then I think it can be a little bit more productive exercise. Yes. And in the beginning of that chapter with SWAT bot, the bot says, pretend I'm speaking in computer voice. This is an excellent start. We now have 37 strengths and two weaknesses. (laughs) Let us move on to opportunities. (laughs) And then the people, the the people that work there are saying, well, well, now wait a minute, hold on. No, quiet. We must... (laughs) (laughs) I was laughing to keep from uh, crying, of course. So (laughs) at any rate, there's another one that I thought, uh, another villain that was really important for marketers particularly. And that's this Megalo megalo plan, M-E-G-A-L-O dash plan. And uh, height five foot five, weight 220 pounds, description, an unwieldy plan of excessive size loaded with non-essential data, extraneous information, and laundry lists of tactics. An example, the 65-slide PowerPoint deck that includes tons of data and information, but few, if any, strategic insights. So 
are a lot of marketers uh, and, and as well as others, are they doing these because it's like the term paper idea where the longer it is, you, you, you probably get a higher grade? Do they, what, what, why does, why do people continue to do that? Is there a certain, like, a, is it like a security blanket for the presenter as well as the people that are being presented to and who have to make the decisions? That's a great, uh, I love that analogy of the security blanket, and Douglas, because I, I think you hit it right on the head. Oftentimes, from a marketing perspective, we're doing a product management plan or a brand plan, and we want to cover all the bases because typically what happens is we have to present these plans to upper management or groups in other functional areas, and we're going to get questions. So I think sometimes, to your point, the thinking is the more that we stuff into the plan, the fewer you know spots that we have open that people can ask questions about that we don't know. But what, what I'm seeing today is the, the best marketers and, and, and sales leaders are making their plans a lot more concise and really just covering what's the essence of our plan. Again, what are we trying to achieve? How are we going to do it? You could certainly have the, mar- you know, the market trends, the competitive numbers, the sales, and that data and things can be in there. I typically prefer to keep that in an appendix and really just call out what are the key insights that are driving this marketing strategy? What are the key factors from a competitive and customer perspective that we need to take into account? And then what are we going to do and how are we going to do it? And again, it sounds simple, but it's it's difficult sometimes to distill our thinking and to really clarify what that is. And again, you know, a good test for for you marketers and sales leaders out there is, you know, try and condense your plan down to two slides. And if you can condense it down to two slides, then I think you really have a good handle on the business. And as I sit with boards of directors and senior leaders, typically now senior leaders are only getting a couple slides in about 10, 15 minutes to talk about their business. So if you can do that process, I think it'll really prepare you for future success as well. That is such great advice. It really forces uh, some focus, but also it brings to mind another book that was on the show by Alan Dibb called The One-Page Marketing Plan, and despite the maybe gimmicky name, it's a really great book, and it shows how you can, you should be able to summarize a marketing plan on one page with nine little boxes. It was very good. I think it's, uh, I, I recommend that book all the time. Now, you mentioned tactics, though, or I mentioned it when I read about that this is a big challenge for marketers, and I, I don't mean to be unfair here, but I think it's a lot of younger marketers that are, you know, they're being told, focus on the tactics. And that's this villain called Tactique, T-A-C-T-I-Q-U-E, a little French there. So it's allowing oneself to get caught up in the tactical weeds of the business and lose sight of the big picture. How best to spar with and hopefully vanquish Tactique? Well, one of the things I like to say is that all tactics are not created equally. And again, one of the things that I see when I look at a lot of sales and marketing plans is I see a lot of tactics included. And I've asked people, I said, why do you have all of your tactics, so many tactics in the plan? And they say, again, look, Rich, if we don't meet our numbers this year or our market share or sales or revenue, we don't want people to say, well, why didn't you try this tactic or, th- or that tactic? If we have it all in the plan and we, we've got it all in there, then people are going to say, well, at least they tried everything. But again, what, we, what I like to do is, is really think about tactics in two ways. Number one, how different is this tactic from the competition? So is the competition 
Do they have a tactic that's similar in nature or is this really unique? And then the second way to think about it, and maybe most importantly, is how relevant is this to the customer? So when you think about this tactic, whether it's a, a training aid, a video, a podcast, a, a, a brochure, how relevant is it to the customer? Again, you can just use a simple high-low high scale to think about that. But what, what, what we find in workshops when we, when we break down people's plans and we break down the tactics is there's a lot of tactics out there that are not real relevant to the customer and they're not differentiated from the competition. So why do we keep pouring money into those types of tactics? So really want to think about from a tactical perspective, number one, is it relevant to the customer? And number two, is it different than the competition? Mm. Such great points. And I think there's also an additive nature of a lot of these marketing plans where they bring forward everything they've been doing, but they're not doing trade-offs like you talk about in the book. They're not figuring out, well, you know what? This isn't really working. It's like there's this fear of not wanting to stop doing something. Exactly. And, I, and again, it comes down to great strategy involves trade-offs. You know, when you think about the great companies out there, the great leaders out there, they're willing to make trade-offs. They're willing to say, we're going to focus on this customer. And quite frankly, we're not going to focus on these customers. We're, we're not going to try to please everyone. And when you think about the best brands out there, whether it's Apple or Amazon or Southwest Airlines, whoever it might be, they've really specifically focused on certain customers and really exceeded their expectations in bringing value to those customers. So to your point, Douglas, intuitively, yeah, we want to please everybody. But from a business perspective, the, the success is really in making those trade-offs and not trying to be all things to all people. Mm. Let's talk about decisions. I can't remember which character said it because as the listener can probably sense there were a lot of characters in the book. But something that I wanted to carve in stone was a decision you avoid is a decision made. And it's all I, I liken that to the another thing I've heard said where people say, just make a decision. Even a bad one is better than no decision. <laughs> so it really uh, resonated with me. So naturally, villain number 15 is decision demon. And I think found that very interesting because you talk about several of the traps that people fall into where they are maybe not even making a decision, but they're, they're unwittingly making a decision. Can you talk about some of those, uh, I guess they're sort of booby traps of decision making. Exactly. And probably the one that people be familiar with that, that I see quite often is the whole idea of the anchor effect. Mm. And I think this became popular in, from a negotiation perspective. So, you know, if you're buying a house, the anchor is the list price. So, you know, the anchor's $300,000. That is anchored in our mind as, okay, that's relevant information. But the house could be, could be worth 100000 It could be worth 500000 But that anchors our, in, our, in our mind. And from a, a marketing perspective and a sales perspective, what we typically see as the anchor is last year's plan. Or, or last year's budget. And so we use that as an anchor in our mind. And what happens is we start to base everything off of last year's stuff. But what's interesting is people say, well, lots of stuff is changing in my business. The competitors, the customers, uh, the, the decision makers, they're all changing. Yet the research shows where 94% of companies are basically allocating their marketing 
in sales resources to the same place exactly that they did the year before. So again, the anchor is really, you know, not using the plan, not using the numbers from last year, but really starting with that clean slate, that fresh white piece of paper to say, okay, let's look at what's happening right now and where do we want to go how do we want to get there and what's going to be the best way to do that? So I would, I'd say the anchor is probably the biggest one from a sales and marketing perspective that I see. Um, if we can kind of shed that anchor and not necessarily use just the budget numbers or last year's plan, we can start to maybe think a little bit differently than we have in the past. Every one of these decision pitfalls I, I recognized and it brought to mind something where I've maybe made a bad decision or I've seen organizations that were just uh, – it was sort of a, a blind spot, and that actually brings us to one of the other weapons. I'm sorry, I, I seem to be weapon happy today, but I think <laughs> there were only four or five in here, but it was this contextual radar, and the reason I say that is one of the other decision demons was called absolute performance, where a company, as I understood it, a company would be saying, well, our sales are up. Well, our sales are up 10%. Okay, great. Well, the, the category is up 30%. But they're not even focusing on the, the larger picture. And that's where you have this contextual radar, which I could just envision it being put on a big horizontal and, and vertical line, put on a whiteboard, and it's got four sections, company, market, competitors, customers. Explain what this contextual radar is. I mean, it almost seems to, too simple, <laughs> but it's, uh, it's uh, overlooked even more than that, I think. Yeah, that, that's a good point. And, and what, what I typically see is we want to jump to the answer. You know, we want to, we want to, we're, we're, you know, we'd love to go right to the solution. Okay. How are we going to solve this? And, and the adage that I like to think about is, you know, if you, if you hurt your back and it wasn't getting better, you went to your doctor, you got into the exam room and the doctor came in and she didn't ask you any questions. She didn't take any tests. She just wrote a prescription, handed it to you and left you know, we would think that's crazy because in medicine, we know the adage is prescription without diagnosis equals malpractice. Mm -hmm. And I see that, but I see that sin in business committed all the time. We're prescribing new activities, new tactics, new projects without first stopping to diagnose what's going on. So the contextual radar, to your point, very simple way to diagnose, to kind of really kind of take a snapshot of what's going on in the business. What's top of mind for you and for your team? What's happening in the market? What are the patterns and trends? What's happening with your customers? What are the competitors doing? And then what's happening within the company? So really on one page visually, we've got kind of what's top of mind, what's happening. Then we can start to think about, okay, what, which of these factors do we want to address? Which of these might be important to consider from a planning perspective? So the contextual radar really kind of forces us to step back. And, you know, we think about sometimes strategy is the big picture. It really helps us to start to think about the big picture versus just diving down into a rabbit hole. Mm, back into, uh, the, the, you let tactique back into the room. <laughs> exactly. They're everywhere. Yes. Now it's all these all these uh, villains. Now that you've have given them uh, a personality, I'm I'm even more sensitive to them. So, Rich, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? It's a great question, and I knew you were going to ask me that, Douglas. So I've been thinking about it. And I'd say the one thing that I like people to take away is this idea of new growth comes from new thinking. 
you know, we can't do the same things and think in the same ways year after year and expect some type of miraculous new growth. You know, that would be like a farmer expecting new plants to grow without first planting the seeds. So I'm a big believer that we have to give ourselves a lot of food for thought. And, you know, your show, I think, is tremendous food for thought for a lot of business people around the world and business publications, you know, reading things outside of your area, talking to people in your company that are in different functions, HR, IT, operations, to get their perspectives on things. So I think this idea of new growth really drives is really driven by new thinking, you know, forces us to think about what's going to spark, what's going to catalyze that new thinking. And I think, again, you know, books, podcasts, talking with other people really, really potentially can do that. Mm, and the domain jumping that you talked about there. Look look what it's brought us. It's brought us this graphic novel about strategy. I think if people get this book, if they haven't read a, a strategy book, first off, you don't have to be a college grad or have some MBA or whatever to to understand this. I'm I'm sorry to upset all the uh, business school professors who are listening. <laughs> but also, I think if you got this book, and if you're also able to get a hold of these uh, training cards, it's a lot of fun, and it would really uh, help you to marinate in uh, the world of strategic thinking. And I, I can almost guarantee that over time, people would say, she is a really good strategic thinker. <laughs> and it reminds me of when I was getting my MBA, and the very end of the program, there was a professor, and it was like the capstone course and on strategy. And I don't really remember anything from getting my MBA. I'm sorry to say, no, I'm kidding. Uh, it was a great experience. <laughs> but I can remember at the very end of the course, or the only, one of the things I recall was this professor saying, you know, wherever you go off to work, and all the different things you're going to do, try to look at everything through, through a strategic lens. And I always found that really helpful. And this book is, uh, I think, going to help people do that in a way that they haven't done that before. So I know it was a hard question for you to answer. And I'll be the first to admit, asking authors, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? Very unfair question. So let me ask you another one that's, that's probably equally unfair. What is one thing the listener can do today to put in action an idea from your book? So the one thing I would say is think about what you did last week. If last week was a relatively typical week, think about what you did last week, where you spent your time, your energy, your talent. So think about the, the meetings that you went to, the teleconferences that you were on, the reports that you had to fill out, the email that you, that you corresponded with. And what I would say then is think about what can you do less of? What can you stop doing? Mm. Because if we can take things off of our plate that aren't truly important, it really opens up time to be more creative, to be more innovative, to spend more time with our customers, both our internal customers and external customers. So I would really consider, think about what you did the previous week. What should you be doing less of? And you know it. It, it just takes a moment to sit down, think about it, write it down. What should you do less of? And is there anything you can just eliminate? Again, this is not going to cost you any money. Uh, it, it'll, it'll, you'll invest a little time, but that will free you up to be more valuable in the areas that can bring the greatest improvement to your, to your performance and to your team's performance. Great advice. And you know what that brings to mind is how it induces a feeling of freedom. Sort of like somebody who's able to get rid of a lot of clutter and junk in their house, 
and they, they get rid of that, I, I, I understand it releases some sort of a happy chemical in your brain. <laughs> I think the same thing happens. <laughs> uh, the same thing happens when a company says, you know what, let's stop doing that. <laughs> well, it, it, Douglas, you just came up with a great analogy. I love that. I mean, it's, it's the idea of spring cleaning. Like you said, getting rid of the clutter, it's, it's kind of a spring cleaning for your, for your brain, for your business. So I love that, that analogy you came up with. Well, thanks. Please use it in one of your, uh, <laughs> one of your <laughs> keynotes. So, Rich, what books have inspired your working career? So there's a couple. In, in one, one's going to go back a bit in the time machine, but one was called The Power of Full Engagement um, by Jim Lair and Tony Schwartz. And, you know, this was written, boy, probably 20, 30 years ago, I think. And what I really loved about this book was that it, it said it's not just about time management. It's about how you manage your energy. And so they talk about, you know, being able to manage your, your, your mind, your body, your relationships. And I think over the long haul, you know, we certainly have times where we're working probably more than we should, but then we're typically sacrificing other areas. So the book really conveys the importance of, you know, managing your energy in all areas, mind, body, spirit, relationships. And I think to me, that was an important reinforcement that, look, you know, you're not just in it for the next 24 hours. You're in it for the next 24 or 40 years. So pace yourself and make sure that you're investing time in each of those areas. That was a that was an important one for me. Wow, I did not know about it. I just pulled it up, and it's a New York Times bestseller. The power of full engagement, managing energy, not time, is the key to high performance and personal renewal. Wow. So, Rich, are there any uh, recent or upcoming books that you recommend or looking forward to reading? Yeah, there's one actually I just ordered and uh, should be getting it this week. It's called Blue, The Color of Noise, and it's by Steve Aoki. And so, you know, he's not going to ring a bell as, as, a, as a business person per se, but he is because he, he actually is a, a musician. And more specifically, he, he does he, – the, the, the term that you and I would recognize, Douglas, is he's basically a DJ. Uh, but he's not just any DJ. He typically has anywhere from 50 to 100,000 people attend his performances. He, he earns between 28 and $50 million a year. And he's built this amazing brand by doing a lot of creative things. Um, so he's built, so he started as a DJ, but then he's, he's turned into basically a brand building machine. And so that's one book, you know, I, I always find it interesting to not just tap into traditional business people, but, but tap into really creative people and see what some of the, the things that they're doing to help them be successful. So I'm looking forward to reading that. Oh, that looks really interesting. It, again, back to the domain jumping. Dang it, Horwath. You're taking up all kinds of hard drive, which is actually good because normally my, my mental hard drive is full of really useless trivia. Um, <laughs> but this is really interesting. And I'm, my son, uh, who's in his 20s, uh, really likes uh, you know electronic uh, EDM, as the kids say, and exactly. uh, all that sort of thing. I'm sure he knows who this guy is and would roll his eyes saying, gosh, Dad, you're so uncool. But this really does uh, look interesting. And, and you know, there's been a few books on the show over the years about how musicians are brilliant at uh, building a tribe of followers. And that's even back to The Grateful Dead. There was a book by David Merman Scott and Brian Halligan about the, the marketing secrets of The Grateful Dead. And it talked about how 40, 50 years ago, they were doing things that 
companies are now starting to do, and it seemed very counterintuitive, and uh, people thought they were uh, they were crazy because they weren't doing exactly what the record companies were recommending, and it all seemed to uh, have made them look very uh, prescient. And uh, last time I heard, they were uh, pretty successful. So at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to uh, your sites and uh, your social media, Twitter, your LinkedIn profile. And, and we're also going to include a link to the section of your site about Strategy Man. And people can uh, watch the video. And we're going to include that video on the, on the show notes as well. And I hope that folks who uh, listen will uh, hop on LinkedIn and thank you for uh, being a guest and maybe connect with you. And for you, dear listener, if you're listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found by going to this episode and clicking on the show notes link. The name of the book is Strategy Man versus the Anti-Strategy Squad, Using Strategic Thinking to Defeat Bad Strategy and Save Your Plan. The author is Rich Horwath. Rich, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Douglas, thanks a lot. Your work inspires a lot of people, including myself, so keep up the great work. And that closes the book on episode 248 of the Marketing Book Podcast. For more, check out this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other helpful resource for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. Special thanks to our sponsor, Oribe, to start turning your website data into actionable insights. Get your free 10-day trial, no credit card required, by visiting Oribe dot io slash marketing book that's o-r-i-b-i dot io slash marketing book and don't forget make sure to use that link to get 30 percent off your first three months you can also find that link at marketingbookpodcast.com and please join us next time as we welcome Stu heineke back to the marketing book podcast to talk about his new book get the meeting an illustrative contact marketing playbook thanks again for listening to the marketing book podcast this episode was produced by amanda harrison this Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer.